Welcome to In the Arena, a show where entrepreneurs and leaders take us behind the headlines and into the biggest crises of their careers and lives and how they made it to the other side. I'm Jesse Janae, a startup founder and your host, frequently joined by guest hosts who have also built companies and seen some things themselves. On this season of In the Arena, we ask our guests to relive their most challenging professional and personal moments in painstaking detail, from major deals collapsing to public scandals and even being sent to prison. More importantly, we hear how they came back from the brink as they share their biggest lessons, mental frameworks, and earned wisdom with us. So, let's go into the arena. On our debut episode of In the Arena, we're being transported into a tumultuous period for Uber, told through the eyes of our guest, Emil Michael. I'm also joined by co-host Eric Torenberg, a startup founder, investor, and podcaster. Emil was famously the chief business officer at Uber during their meteoric and frankly incomparable growth from 2013 to 2017, as well as CEO Travis Kalanick's right hand. Few leaders in tech have accomplished so much in terms of raw user and revenue growth, as well as funding success. Also, few leaders have personally experienced so much turmoil. So we're back to the office with Travis, and then Eddie Q, who is always in the meetings, calls me. He's like, I got to tell you something. We're about to announce a billion-dollar investment in DD. And this was the same day. Oh, my God. We just met with Tim Cook, and he's picking our brain about our China business. What? And... I was, I was like, oh my God, I got played by Tim Cook. <laughs> Holy cow. Today, he joins us to go in depth on the hashtag delete Uber campaign that gripped the company and frankly, social media writ large in early 2017. Personally, I was taken aback by Emil's humility and candor about this painful period. And I enjoyed his reflections on how he might have handled pivotal moments differently, like Uber's unsuccessful bids to acquire rival Lyft. We are very lucky to have you, Emil. Thank you so much for joining in the arena. That's uh, great to be here. So we're we're going to jump right in as we do, and we're going to skip right to a very intense moment. And you're, you're a unique guest in the sense that there are just so many <laughs> intense moments so many that intense we... Moments we no one yeah. knows where we're <laughs> going right now <laughs> because there's so, so many options. Um, but we're going to jump to when Delete Uber starts trending, you know, and there's a big piece about it. And what I'd like you to do, if you will, is try to actually, before you just tell us about that moment, would try to recollect like what's actually going on in your day. Like, because I, I'd love to understand your true perspective. Like, where are you when you find this out? If you can, if you can remember that, I don't know if you remember that detail, but the, the more like bringing it to life for us, you can, that'd be amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, President Trump was elected in November of 16 inaugurated January of 17. Seven days after that, he did something like the, I think it was the migrant ban or something. So, you know, ban some, some form of immigration into the U.S. And the taxi drivers at JFK decided to uh, do sort of a strike. Mm -hmm. There were people protesting at the airport. So this is January 27th, like a week after the nation is you know, especially San Francisco is is on fire really? about yeah. the world at this point. And I think I'm on vacation in Mexico. I get a call 
from Travis. I don't, hadn't taken vacation in forever. And I get a call saying, you'll never believe this, but we suspended surge. Remember Uber had surge pricing and it was very controversial. People were like, oh my God, you charged me triple price during a snowstorm. And we sort of had for years to try to explain how that was a good thing that it made sure there were rides available. So we suspended surge during this strike. Wow. And one guy who was on Twitter, some blogger, was like, Uber's trying to break the strike. Mm. <laughs> um, and you're like, we weren't trying to break the strike. We were trying to, you know, get protesters home from the airport. It was like an act of goodwill, like no de- good deed goes unpunished. Totally. And and he said, we should just delete Uber. And then... And that was on Twitter. That's a tweet. It was a tweet. Okay. And it went incredibly viral. And... It was sort of like this, holy cow, what did we do wrong? Um, and you're talking about 500,000 people deleted their Uber app. On that day or like over the course of it? Over the course of the next three yeah. days. Okay. But I mean, that's still sh- incredibly short. Yeah. And, and you know, Uber, like the revenue per user is really high, right? If you rode Uber yeah. 10 yeah. times a month or 20 bucks, 200, that's a big deal. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars of lost revenue for something that we're like, how do we not like, what do we do wrong here? And, and in retrospect, I was there sort of with my phone ring off the hook, trying to talk to people. And it was the most helpless feeling I've ever had mm-hmm. because this thing took off, no matter how you explained it, it didn't matter. People were angry. Yeah. This thing had gotten out there. It was an easy protest act to pull up your phone, hit, you know, hold it, hold down on the Uber app, click the X and delete it. So it was sort of like the ease of protest made it a bigger thing as well. Sort of like the Silicon Valley Bank, you could wire money out right away, made it quick, more go more quickly. It was that kind of thing. And it was an amazing feeling of like, holy cow, we're in an environment now. It's like a free fall. Like things can happen. Yeah. yeah. That, and you can't, exp- you don't have time to explain it and it doesn't matter. It doesn't even, yeah, explaining it does, is not even going to help the type of people who are taking that action. So you're on vacation. Are you like... I want to imagine it. Like, are you like literally on the beach and then this is just like, oh my gosh, I like, where's my laptop? <laughs> or, or like, I, I don't know. I just, I, as a, someone who's not had any um, crises that reach this level at all, but ha- have my own crises in entrepreneurialist life, I just want to know like how you felt <laughs> and what did you have to do? Like, were you able to do anything at that point? I was at dinner at the pool, you know, at a poolside thing, eight, you know, eight o'clock evening ish. And I was like, I got to go take this call. And then obviously like, I never went back to dinner. I had to tell people I'm dinner with, Hey guys, I got a roll and a laptop, <laughs> you know, spotty coverage in some hotel in Mexico. And then, you know, hit the tweet stream just to see, and then see it getting more angry, more viral, more serious, more widespread, more of my friends who are people I know going, Emil, I can't believe you Uber did this on, on DMs and, and then, so me then trying to explain to at least people who had knew me, I said, like, at least they'll listen to me. And they did. But then, like, that's a small set of people. How I make 50 phone calls or, you know, 50 emails. You saved those 50 <laughs> users. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but, but thought they, they were messengers. So, like, maybe I would amplify totally. this so at least people would understand what had happened when it stops. And it was just, you know, helplessness and anxiousness sadness that the employees 
yeah. who you know worked so hard at Uber, who were doing the right thing, felt that you know their company was doing the wrong thing because their parents were calling them, going like, "What are you doing at this company?" Oh, it was, yeah. it was because most of these startups are younger people, so they haven't been through yeah. as many of these kind of moments, right? Um, so calling the key leaders uh, to help them understand it was it was quite a kickoff to what was a you know a, a bad 2017 for Uber in general. A kickoff to a totally calm year. <laughs> um, so you mentioned something I want to go deeper on, which is like internal calm. So when something like this happens, or in Uber situation, I think all of us know probably too much about the external comms. Like we know too much <laughs> relative <laughs> to the situation, like what was going on in the media and whatnot. But you're mentioning the very real personal situations. You've got young employees who are trying to parse this, trying to explain to their family. What else is going on in internal comms? Like, do you have a Slack that's like blowing up or does someone create like a hashtag delete Uber Slack channel to debate it? Like, what else do you deal with internally at a, in a moment like that that would help us imagine what it's really like to, to be working there? Yeah, it's a very difficult situation to deal with something like this because it was so unique. Um, like, when's the last time you heard of a mass, even today, a mass delete app campaign, right? So, so you know, you tried to put out your message like our PR team on Twitter saying, hey, we, we suspended surge for this reason. We are not trying to do, uh, you know, break the strike. We're not strike breakers. But no one's listening to that. No one cares what at Uber is saying on Twitter <laughs> right there. So it was this sort of like scrambling. And, and the weirdest part of it was usually in crises, there's something to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and there was kind of nothing to do except damage control with the people like our investors like what happened explain to them and they're like okay i get it what do we do i'm like i don't know what do we do we tell the world the truth and, and you sustain it and, like we plan you know a future pr thing where you go on tv and talk about it who knows but it was one of these the most weird crises i've ever been in because not only did we do nothing sort of wrong but there was no way to correct it it's not even just like a bad press situation it's like there's a very real business impact. So you're feeling that all of a sudden you're reforecasting. I don't, I don't know. I'm hypoth I'm hypothesizing here, but you're all of a sudden people are like, wait, my models are wrong. Like it's like a, it's a business situation, not just every press situation could be that, but it's a, has a real impact immediately. Yeah. And then, and I will give Lyft credit for this. That night they donated a million dollars to the ACLU. Like <laughs> <we stayed. laughs> no joke. No joke. And I was like, that is some hardcore, wow. Wow. whoa, stuff. It's black ops. <laughs> it's black <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you know, bril brilliant, but... Media jujitsu. Super jujitsu. <laughs> and they're like, you know, basically, delete over, come on over to Lyft. There's so many layers to this one. And one of them is political as well, which I've thought a lot about. Just like, how do you even have an appropriate commentary as a company when it's a white hot political issue, but somehow this is all everything like rolled into one thing. It's like a business problem, it's a press problem, it's visual, it's affecting people, and it's political with Trump and like all these personalities. Do you have to navigate the political stuff internally as well? Like, are people actually fired up about that? Yeah, I mean, think about this. So then the next, like the very next crisis that happened there was that President Trump invited all the tech leaders to the yeah. White House. Mary, Bar you know, and, and industrial leaders, Mary Barra, the CEO of GM, Elon Musk, Tip Cook, all, all these folks, and Travis, right? Because Uber was a very important company at this time. 
And on the heels of that, Uber and Travis became the, you better not go to this Trump thing because mm. we're going to continue deleting the app thing. So imagine this, you're like, okay, there's a new administration. We have a business that has can be impacted by transportation regulations, labor regulations, whatever. President's invited you and other CEOs to this thing. Your employee base is going, don't go. Your customers are going, don't go. And you, for some reason, become the focus of this whole 20-person CEO meeting. And you had, he had to call the president and say, I can't, I can't go, sir, you know, Mr. President. And so you're like, how did this, how do we get here? Where somehow we're the target of the ire of what had happened in that election. And, you know, these, our participation in things that other people had done became so, so glaringly controversial. But yes, and you had people at the company saying like, well, do you ignore the president? Do you ignore your customer? Like, what do you do? So it was, a, it was a really unique time, I'd say. Do you find in a time like that, that it's also just incredibly distracting internally? Like, do you feel as an executive, like, we have so much other stuff to work on? I mean, obviously, it's just so important in the first three days you talk about it. But does it actually become just like the internal topic for a month? And you're like, I wish we could focus on the business or something. I, I just wonder how that feels when you're there. And there's just, you know, growing a business is just hard in general. Yeah, I mean, these these sorts of things are totally defocusing because you, whatever you have, travel you have planned, you have to cancel, whatever sort of planning meetings, you know, you're early in 20, you know, 2016, start thinking about the year ahead and everyone else is watching Twitter and TV and reading about this. So like the whole employee base, employee base is distracted. Distracted. Um, so it does, it does have a real cost to efficiency and you know, productivity at the company, but you know, the people at the top, well, who else is going to deal, deal with this stuff, right? Who else is going to talk to, you know, go do an uh, impromptu all hands with a group of people who are scared about what this means for the company. So you have, that's where your real leadership skills have to kick in and try to find how to allocate your time. What does getting past this problem look like? How do we not fall so far behind on the productivity that we're trying to do? How do we fix this so next time we're sort of a little like more understanding of the environment so don't, you don't trip into something like this again? So it's, yeah, it's incredibly distracting. I want to ask one more thing before you go, Eric. Was there a person who felt incredibly bad because they made the decision that kicked it all off? Was there someone just like cowering <laughs> in a corner? I just have to know who was just like totally innocent and just like, oh, don't look at me. Like, I <laughs> Like I almost broke the company because um, also helping that person. I've had help, again, different contexts, that person through things. It, was there one person who was like whole teams that decided? No, there's one person who <laughs> innocently <laughs> sent out a tweet saying, hey, we are suspending surge pricing due mm. to the problems at JFK. And it was, you know, not a senior person because we, we empower younger people to to do this stuff in terms of whether it was a weather crisis or, you know, things like that, so that people didn't think we we're taking advantage of hurricanes or, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, we had a whole protocol about doing this and someone did it. And yeah, you, uh, that person was like, holy cow. <laughs> and, you know, obviously they, they were not, they were not doing the wrong thing. They just got unlucky. They just almost broke everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oops. Just a commentary on the times, you know, we're talking about 2017. This was a time where Uber and there were some other companies who were basically like almost punching bags for, for people 
who just didn't like tech. They they were calling a bunch of nerds like tech bros as if they were doing like cocaine or something all the time, like doing these egregious things. They're just nerds building these companies. And what's different now is tech learned, I feel like the industry built immunity to attacks from inside the company. It would be like less than 1% of employees or just a handful of employees who would go out to journalists and they would concoct this you know, story that was out of line with what was actually happening that was very negative to the to the company. And I feel like we learned enough from this that we started to build our own internal media, even if just on Twitter, like people who would just push back. And that kind of culminated in, you know, Elon is the most like strongest example of someone who just says, fuck you, like you're wrong. No. And you're if you're against the company, you're fired. And I'm going to just contradict you in public. And I feel like if Uber was having those crises in 2023, you could have maybe done something similar. But maybe at the time, we, we just as an industry had to be apologetic because we just didn't have the the resources to like, you know, directly fight fight back. That and that was the advice we were getting, right? Is like, you know, just take it. Yeah, I mean, there were, there was a turning point in 2014, 15, 16, where the tech press became much more critical uh, and less, you know, adulation about startups and more about you know the challenges in them. And, and it was a it was a long term change, but it definitely changed. And at that time, companies. Well, uh, didn't have their own channels, their own Twitter followings. They didn't sort of have their internal comms things structured in a way to to be responsive to these types of things. Um, so yes, we were caught a little flat-footed. But today, I do think companies can withstand some of these things, especially when they're not true. And then also, there's and this is a bad thing, but but people don't trust the media yeah. more yeah. today than they did seven years ago. So everything they hear is taken with a grain of salt. That's huge. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad sides to that for as a country, mm-hmm. but right now, at least there's always time for another version of the story or someone else's point of view on that story. And that often leaves people like, okay, it's food fight. I, mean, mm-hmm. I don't know who to believe. I'm, you know, I'm not going to condemn anyone or praise anyone. You know, hopefully it works out. And it seems like the two approaches are either the the Elon approach or the Travis approach. Either you're you know totally outside of the the media build, building heads down, and it seems like they're crushing it, or you're like in the media every day and you know willing to contradict, you know, push back on things that are wrong and and make sure that your your narrative is getting across. Yeah, there there are a few companies like Brian at Airbnb who just are somehow because of their talent able to f- float above it all. Right, <laughs> <laughs> they're just. You know, it's the nicest company. You would never think that anything bad happened in Airbnb. And he just has a persona and a way of talking about his company that's really transcends sort of some of this food fight thing that I, I found really I find really impressive. I think it's really impressive. I, I'm a generally extremely optimistic person, but I have a I have a streak of still concern that the desire to rip someone off a pedestal is so strong <laughs> that the higher the pedestal floats up there. <laughs> Just the fall, the more bones are there to crush at the end. I just really, I really hope that that's completely wrong. I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, but it, it, it scares me a little bit that it's just maybe not yet. You know, in a sad kind of way. Hopefully, hopefully that's yeah. incorrect. Hopefully, I mean, look, I, I, I joke with people that Elon's Captain America. If you take down Elon, you're taking, you know, the American dream and immigrant built all yeah. these great companies, and yes, he's got, got things, but. But yes, we have that nature in our in our press and so on to take down the top guy or gal, which 
which we hope doesn't take down everybody. Then there's no heroes. Then why? Totally. Why don't we transition to a different story? Maybe let's transition to the, the China one, because that one was so high stakes in so many ways. I mean... I'd be scared doing business in China, period, at a, at a high level based on what you know, has happened to other people in, in China recently. Why don't you take us through like being on the ground, doing some of the, the most intense or craziest things that, that happened there? Yeah. So in 2014, right, you have to imagine yourself back to almost you know, uh, nine, 10 years ago now, the optimism of US-China relationships was at its peak. Mark Zuckerberg would go there to try to convince President Xi to get Facebook there. Tim Cook was there all the time. I mean, it was literally, it was like, maybe we can open up and may, there might be a chance where we can do business there. Chinese were, a government was thinking about giving banking licenses to Goldman Sachs. It was still the same president, but just a different time. And, you know, we had this business that didn't seem sensitive. It was a social media, it didn't have sort of prop, you know, any way of sort of changing what people think about Chinese or the government. So we were sort of allowed to slide through um, as not really a you know tech business or a social media business. And it was amazing because a lot of Chinese folks wanted to work for an American company because it was ex- just exciting and different. Uh, the mayors in China who care about transportation in their cities they loved us because mm-hmm. they were like, they don't want a monopoly, like Didi, a monopoly. they wanted mm-hmm. us. So every time I go to a different city in China, the mayor would want to meet with me or Travis and like sit down and have tea and talk about welcoming the city. And do you want this in this building? And what can we do for you? And you're like, this is amazing. The competitive environment, however, was like nothing else I've ever seen. I mean, yeah, talk about which was the main competitor, texting our drivers saying, Uber's not going to pay you this week Wow! to try to cause a rush at our office. Wow. You know, with employees and doing stuff like that. Being, you know, I didn't love being followed every minute in China when I was mm-hmm. there. I didn't love getting the same hotel room every day, knowing that, you know, sort of feeling like I was being observed in, in the room and totally. all those things. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was wild times out there. And good times. And thank God we sold the company to Didi in 2016 because in today's environment, this is none of this is possible. I mean, doing the acquisition in 60 days and, and the way I did it was with three and a half billion dollars from the public investment fund in Saudi in May of 2016. Mm-hmm. The next day I called my counterpart at Didi and I said, I'm a, you know, we've got three and a half billion more dollars to, to blow in China, if you want to fight this war, <laughs> or we can figure out a deal. And like she immediately came to San Francisco. We kept our phones outside so no one was tapping the phone, shades drawn. Oh, yeah. I was only allowed in there with her and her whole team until she trusted me enough. And I was allowed to bring my people to try to come to a deal. And then we met in a secret location in Macau. Wow. You know, to close the deal with lawyers. We didn't leave for three days. Uh, high intensity environment they didn't want the chinese regulatory authority knowing knowing about this we had to sign it and close it the same day and tell our employees and it was it was wild times that has to be kept super under wraps in every in every way like how do you go about secret keeping on that level because we're just talking about talking about the the fates of so many people governments who do want to know all these details like Besides just whisking lawyers away to Macau, is there? I just feel like there's more to it. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know how you keep a deal so big, you know, under wraps. Uh, like, how else? What else goes into that? Yeah, 
speed is a weapon, right? Speed, yeah, the, the faster you go. Yep. And that actually forces negotiators on both sides to actually come to agreements sooner. So yeah. it forces actually... It's a forcing function for that. Yeah, it's a forcing function. You know, you had to have lawyers under like triple, double secret NDA, right? And then you had to increasingly over time bring more and more people into the deal and swear them to secrecy. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of got lucky that we got the 60 days without knowing it. But I will I never forget the day that this was announced and I had to go to our employees in China who were so dedicated. They bled Uber Black. And I had to tell them that we got sold and they were like a room full of crying employees no. oh. who had just made a ton of money. But yeah, were they're just devastatingly so sad. sad. Wow. And I had G and my counterpart there and I was like, look, they're, I remember saying this, they're not monsters because the competition was so fierce totally. that everyone thought the other side was a monster. Right. <laughs> it was one of the most wild experiences I ever had. And, and there were some weird things that happened in China. When you have a Chinese subsidiary, you have to have two Chinese citizens sign the docs. So they technically own the company. So I had to locate the two people who owned the Chi Uber China company who, if they absconded, was a problem. So you had this other effort to do this, to get them in the same place, to get these like docks with red wax on them. I mean, it was a very, very complicated thing to do in 60 days. I don't remember when different, when each different chat app comes out, like Signal and all this different stuff, but something, I, another like just detail I'm curious about is even just communicating internally, like how do you make sure that this stuff is not, getting out and I'm I don't feel like I'm a super paranoid person but it just feels hard it just feels like technically hard to make sure that you're messaging you don't accidentally put someone on CC <laughs> just stupid stuff you know like uh is there any other mechanics to that like was there a chat app that was better at the time or are you just like on slack and stuff just on a channel where you're like I hope this is really super lock symbol <laughs> well so so slack hadn't infiltrated uber yet oh, in 2016 right. okay. yeah so People were using Telegram or, or text. Telegram you know, was a good app for that. Yeah. But also I've learned that my emails were like, people would send me an email and my reply, my answers would be yes, no, or call me. Mm. That was, that That's was good. it. That's <laughs> so good. that um, no email that I wrote with the details of this didn't be floating around. So I had to keep a lot of it. I had a core team around me that were like deal machines, but yes, it was, it, it's hard to keep that stuff down but you know uber was a pretty secretive company generally and compartmentalized so we sort of had a head start start on that mm -hmm. um and Didi didn't want it either because they didn't want their employees to think they were they lost and they had to buy uber so we all had the same incentive you're yeah there's no asymmetric you weren't worried there was no asymmetric warfare from that component it was right. everyone had the same motivation it's just more of a technical thing like as someone who has occasionally put the wrong person on cc i just yeah. <laughs> just feel Paranoid. Okay, cool. Yes, no, call me. <laughs> yeah, <the> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm learning things. I'm learning things because that, yeah, that's honestly, that's a good strategy. And the, and the acquisition, is it as simple as someone throws out a number, the, the other party throws out a counter number and you come somewhere in the middle or like, what, what was it actually like? <laughs> oh no i mean this is this, this is like you know, oh my gosh eric <laughs> the, 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 you know is it chinese companies are headquartered if they want foreign investment in the caymans so you're merging in caymans corp with a you know 
two cavemen scored. But and in in private to private deals, all, it almost becomes the ratio. What ratio of the resulting company do I get? It's like a blend. Like you're pouring water into a cup, and it's like how much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. And you know, you're, there's a lot of chicken there because you're doing subsidies to get riders. You're moving market share. China has, I think, a hundred cities with ten million people or over. The U.S. has like one. <laughs> so you're the the vastness of China and the amount of expenditure. So there was a lot of incentive for us to get that deal done so we stopped spending money and for them so they could stop subsidizing to do that. So it all just comes down to the ratio, but but the complexity of the cross-border deal with the regulatory where where the entities are was, was serious. And I, I think we talked in a previous interview that you and Lyft almost got there and that that was a big missed opportunity for, for both sides. Yeah, twice. I was super in favor of the deal just because, again, the subsidy war was just unhealthy for the system, right? Yeah. And I got, I got there once and then John Zimmer and, uh, blew it from, from Lyft side because he didn't want to agree to sort of the, can de- like, you know, usually you acquire a company, the, the, the leaders that your company acquires stay on for a couple of years. They invest into some, some amount of what they do. He didn't want to agree to that because he didn't, trust that we would give him that it was for him it was you were talking about like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, up front and then a few hundred to come and he he just didn't he blew it on that point and then some other time travis just didn't want to do it because he thought you know we had the upper hands there and i think you know had we done that the u.s market share the u.s marketplace would have been a lot healthier for rideshare but it didn't happen and look at what lyft now lyft now is trading at three and a half billion dollars they raised eight billion dollars so I'm going to go super general, if you'll humor me. What takeaways do you have from a human perspective on those two deals that don't come to fruition that you just mentioned? Like the numbers can work, everything can be good, and a human being who has just bled to to start something has to sign on the dotted line. Have you learned anything as a leader and that would make you feel like those deals maybe could happen or you'd know what to say or I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, no, to- I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I often tell people don't read these negotiation books because the, with the negotiation mm. books or what McKinsey tells you about BATNA, best alternative to negotiation. Shocking. McKinsey doesn't have the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> You're blowing all, my mind. <laughs> it's all sort of just half the, half the story. The other half is what is happening with this person on the other side of the table? Mm-hmm. What is their mental calculus? And their mental calculus includes emotions, they call it feelings of winning or losing, uh, where they are in their life, and so on. And you know, over time, I've, I've really incorporated that into my thinking and negotiations. So what would I have done different with Zimmer in this case? I probably should have gone to his house and sat with him and be like, let's talk about this because that's this is not the case, man. We, you know, you built something great and just went there and met him where he was at emotionally. And, mm-hmm. and it was a money thing too, but just like really kind of worked it out. And on the other thing with Travis, I, you know, I probably should have, you know, said, let me illustrate what this world looks like and this world looks like and been pushier about it. But, uh, because he just didn't, 
like those guys. Right. <laughs> so of it's normal when you spend your time in battle. It's normal yeah, to totally. not like, and yeah, then yeah. basically that that's that can be some of the core issues with M and A is like ultimately then people are like, well now we're one, and then and then you hear about all these flameouts where acquisitions are terrible, and it's usually because totally. at root the people sitting across the table were like. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then you ask those people to all play nice later. It makes perfect sense, but it, it's like a what can we all learn? Because often the other side could be positive if those people could all come to that place, you know? Yes. And, and you could, you could ring fence this or that. You're like, here's how we do it, right? And let's, let's be cold, let's be business people about this. This makes sense. So now it's just a, well, who do you want to spend time with or not and how much? So let's just break that problem down into its chunks. And then, then you might realize like, okay, well, this is probably doable for like a really smart business deal. If this is the combo of what this looks like and that illustration of what this looks like yeah. is really powerful negotiating tools. You know, it would have been in both, in both scenarios. Yeah, helping someone live in that new world. Like, yes. how, like I'm, I'm going to over-exaggerate maybe, but to the extent where you're like, you want a nicer office than the other previous CEO just because you love that office and that's you're going to feel great if you walk into the building and that's your office. It's like getting to a place where you're like, let's let's live this world. Um, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so it's not up here in ethereal. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like what happens every day because when you break it down to every day, then you're like, okay, I'm going to see this guy once every three weeks. Like, you know, totally. Yeah, you're going to do uh, a, a meeting together once every whatever. Yeah. 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 Totally. I want to segue to the the Tim Cook and Apple um, stories because I know Super Pump got that wrong. They got a lot of things wrong. Most of it wrong. I thought it was, um, I thought it was just a documentary. <laughs> was it not? <laughs> okay. Live footage. Yeah. No, no. And we, we can talk about what you know, the things they got wrong. You, you've also talked about it. But m- maybe let's talk about the, the Tim Cook and Apple. Uh, what made that so interesting, so intense? What would what, you learn from that? Yeah. Well, we, so we had, I would say, three meetings with with tim cook and apple that uh where travis and i were together and i don't know if everyone does these meetings with apple but they're multi-hour meetings and i don't know how the ceo of the largest company in the world has that much time to spend but he did because he liked <laughs> that we were in china he liked that we were doing one of the first um bit app apps that was maybe making something change in the real world in real time and getting revenue. So it was a lot of good, we were doing maps and he was competing with Google maps. So we had a lot of relevance to him. And so were two hour brainstorming meetings and Travis would pace around, pace around the deck and all of them were really productive and great. And then two, two different meetings, went, weird, weird stuff happened. So we had, <laughs> we taught, he was picking our brain in this latest meeting about China, 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 how are you doing in China, China, China. And we were very open. It's not like you do an NDA with Apple or Tim Cook. You just kind of go talk to Tim Cook. It's not, you know, it's not, you can't, it's harder to ask for an NDA or something like that from a guy like that. So I got home or back to the office with Travis. And then Eddie Q, who is always in the meetings, calls me. He's like, I got to tell you something. We're about to announce a billion dollar investment in DD. And this was the same day. Oh my God. We just met with Tim Cook and he's picking our brain about our China business. What? And I was I was like, oh my God, I got played by Tim <laughs> Cook. Holy cow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should. That was my my feeling. How does that feel? Like, do you feel like, wow, he's playing 4D chess or, or do you just Do you feel reach out offended? to Tim Cook or you're like, yeah, what do the you, fuck, Do you man? text him and you're like, WTF? Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Tra- Travis texted him exactly that. He's like, maybe you're going to tell me 
bit of yeah. courtesy. I still want to share something with you, but he was like, basically, sorry, guys. Play your yeah, wow. big boy ball. Welcome to big boy ball. <laughs> wow. But that coming back to the people dynamics, like, do you actually feel like that is fair play and that it's just like he made a calculated choice and obviously you're going to trust him less? Or do you feel like it's actually kind of a weird move because who knows what, you know, he needs to do in future rounds with every person he's going to meet? It feels a little strange to me, even though, sure, super powerful, but. I don't know. It seems like not a long-term game kind of move. I, I wouldn't have done that in, in reverse. Yeah. And I think the re- Eddie Q and I had known each other for years. He called me and he knew by the tone of his voice that this was not something he would probably do either. So it was, a, it was definitely one of those things that I put in my brain to, to remember and those kinds of things you know, that some people do that and some people don't. And I, I don't want, I'm not one of them. And you don't know who they are. Like, like in any given circumstance, you don't know who that person is. And I think that's a, this is another general question, but coming off of everything that happened in 2017 and everything that happened in general, do you come away from these experiences in business as you go forward? You do many things now, like a little more paranoid. Like, I'm just curious about how it all hits. More able to deal with it and more paranoid, right? So I'm more paranoid about internally what like, i really didn't understand that when a company is being sort of attacked from the outside there's a lot of people inside who sort of rebel against the company they agree with what the outside people are saying and that's and you're not happen. one and, team like against the world yeah yes especially when it's repeated and sort of you know every day there's something there and that disunity is is very hard to operate against. Yeah. And so would I do it again? You know, you'd have to sort of, you know, deal with the disunity, like get the people out, uh, make really hard decisions really fast um, or fix them. You know, you, and some of these things are harsh. Like what Elon did uh, at Twitter, he's been criticized for it. So he took a Slack channel where everyone's complaining about back to work. He's like, okay, everyone <laughs> on that gone, fired. And, 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 you, and I know why he did it. Um, yeah, yeah. Because of this, he said, yeah. you know, he didn't want the internal dissension at any cost because he said that's going to break the company. On the other hand, I've learned that to just be paranoid about cascading crisis. Once something feels vulnerable, so many other people see that vulnerability and want to write or talk about it. So it's really bad things don't come in ones. They mm-hmm. <laughs> come in like threes mm-hmm. or fives. Um So you kind of have to be prepared for a sustained sort of situation. And you do have to have stronger stronger internal messaging about what you're doing and why. And repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. But having your PR, the the worst thing in the world is having your PR team turn against sort of you, which we had that because their megaphone access. And we just didn't know it until it was too late. I I think a lot about selection filters in the same context of like, Sure, you can go like Elon to that channel of all the people complaining about a company and be like, hey, thanks for outing yourself. Like you're all fired. Um, <laughs> that also creates a certain culture. After that, you have to worry. Obviously, people aren't going to do that again. You know, so it's like a one timer usually. <laughs> um, but how do you prevent people from coming in the first place? Like, do you, do you have thoughts? Who are going to be disloyal during hard times? Yeah, coming about selection filters. Like, how do you kind of create that filter coming in? And not just, I'm not just talking about like hiring, but can you broadcast a certain message of like, to make sure that the people come are aligned 
Uh, did you have an opportunity to do that at Uber? You feel? Yes, you can do that to a large degree. You'll never be perfect, right? The 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 uh, Brian Armstrong Coinbase memo that he sent out. Yep, we'll be covering it here. Yeah, which which is a version of this is who we are. If you if you you should know it on the way in, and I think companies need to be smarter about that. We were pretty good about that, but we got big, so big so fast. We went from two hundred employees to twenty thousand in three years. So. And in so many countries in so many different ways that there was no way that filter was going to be strong enough because no one had ever grown that fast. Not Google, nobody in terms of number of employees. But I do think you should, you can and should have filters like that. I think it's it's almost irresponsible to build a company and not have a filter like that these days because you are going to have mismatch. And I do think we're a little bit of an, a bear market now. So you're, you're in the yeah. a little bit more in the driver's seat to be choosy on who you let in and who you want in. But some of the tone gets set too is, is you know, your, we also used to joke, if you're complaining about the cafeteria f- food, your boss should be fired because they're, you're not being managed well, <laughs> right? Or, or, you know, no quinoa or we're going to have yeah, yeah, cheap yeah. food or, you know, yeah. you have, there are messages you could send by how you spend money and how you do things, which again, sort of attract or repel certain kinds of people. Right. There's no amount of car- corporate values that, that can get around some of those actions that actually tell people how you feel about things and make them stick around or not. Yeah. Zooming out a bit, when you think about the the legend of Uber and how it continues to be to be told and will be told, what do you think is 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 most misunderstood, even from people within tech, who you know, not just people who've only seen the show or something, but people who who are around during this time at you know, not at Uber necessarily, but within tech. Like, what do you think is is most misunderstood? There's this notion that the r- rule breaking or bending the rules on ride sharing was was a bad thing and. One shouldn't have done that. And if you think about that, you're like, okay, well, if we take the world as it is and you succumb to sort of small mafias that these taxi uh, people created or cartels they did with the politicians and that sort of payola scheme that they had, if you don't break that, well, then you're going to have the old system. And so we broke it. And people are like, why did you break it? And you're like, well, because this is a better system for everyone. It's better for drivers, better for riders. And guess what? We won. You know why? Because China, India, US, Brazil, Russia, all of them now legalize ride sharing. Most of the world has listened to their citizens and said, you were right, we were wrong. Yeah. And so had we not done that, and if we play by the rules, we would have still been in that world. And I think it's misunderstood that, well, the world moved because we moved it. Yeah, And every country in the world now adopted something that's better for their citizens. And therefore, we were vindicated. It was a form of corporate civil disobedience. Like these were wrong. These were wrong. And, and we were going to disobey them because they were wrong. And we were, we were doing something that was right. And we were vindicated by, you know, ride sharing being legal all over the world, essentially now. And if, but I feel like in Silicon Valley, the culture at one point, prize these things like the concept that that's not prized or not good to to kind of question the status quo and just effectively if there's some statute somewhere that says you didn't do it right you're wrong like isn't it more shocking that people in tech think that <laughs> like like I, I don't know didn't something the snake start eating its own tail or something I, I i it's just strange to even hear you say that that's the misunderstood part 
Because that yeah. sounds like the cool part. <laughs> the, the, I, th- I think it's a little bit of this this sort of narrative, this anti-tech narrative has 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 made that not a prized value. Move fast and break things is now bad. Yeah. It was good, right? There are these things where, uh, you know, AI is going to do this. Let's stop it. It's bad. You know, not about what good it could do. So there is a little bit more focus on the negative, uh, which I don't understand because our government works slower than it ever has. So you're like, okay, well, should we wait? Like, what do we do? <laughs> do we just wait for something to happen? Um, or do we try to do it? You know, do, do you wish that you could have been more, a bit more slick? And I say slick in both the positive and maybe negative ways, like maybe transcended above it all in the way that you described Brian Chesky or, or been a bit more like Elon and just be, been more aggressive, um, given that you guys were already thrown in the food fight and it was hard to, to get outside of it, you know, against your will. Um, I've thought about this a lot. I think in some ways I believe that had we turned the corner a little bit toward being a little more Chesky, like a little earlier, um, because we went from insurgent to the man really quickly. Like yeah. we, we were, we were the underdog. <laughs> and then in like 18 months, we became the overdog like yeah. very fast. And we'd launched Uber Eats. We're in 92 countries. We're on magazine covers. I was bonus, you know, most out of a startup in the world, most fast growing. And that made the spotlight shinier. And had we sort of like smoothed some of the edges a bit and realized that like, hey, we're now we're going to, people aren't going to rooting for us anymore. They're rooting against us. So we have to take a different approach um, was probably the better answer at that moment. Yeah. We were talking about how, you know, you had government pushback at times. We, we were talking off air how at one point you had a, a SWAT team descend uh, in one of your regions. Like, tell us about one of the crazy, uh, crazy experiences there. And this relates to sort of the things that people understand about Uber. Like, the resistance was unbelievable, right? Uh, when we launched in Las Vegas, a couple of police officers sort of ordered the, 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 a car. This poor guy kind of rolls up to pick him up in Toyota Camry. And they have a fully dressed SWAT team with machine guns take him out of the car to arrest him. And you're like, what, you know, the fear that caused. In Italy, the taxi officers were so serious, they put pictures of our female general manager on the on the po- light posting saying, you should hurt this person, essentially, um, all over the city. All kinds of crazy rules. And in, in, in South Korea, it was legal for foreigners to take a rideshare, but not legal for Koreans to take a rideshare. So if a Korean got in an Uber, they would like arrest the Korean person. LA had rules on the color of socks you could wear. You know, Germany had a rule that if you took someone to the airport, you couldn't take another passenger back to the city. You had to go all the way back to the city and then go back to the airport. And it was called the return to base rule to protect the limo industry. I mean, you had all kinds of rules you're like, you know, that you're facing that were kind of insane. And we were, yeah, we were, we were not following these rules because they were dumb and they're bad for everybody. Wow. In closing here, you know, Jesse and I as entrepreneurs have both had our own versions of crises where some people stepped up and were super loyal and some people, (laughs) some people stabbed us in the back and in our own way, you know, and you certainly had that at a, at a much bigger scale. When you advise people who've gone through versions of what, what I just discussed, 
do you th- say, hey, do you advise them, hey, never think about it again, just like move on with life, like it's just business, it happens? Do you say like, hey, use that as motivation to like beat them uh, in whatever you do next? Like, how do you get over when someone like really fucks you over? It's really hard, especially if it's your life's work or it's sort of so a mission that you were that you were on that was taken from you or, or so much money was taken. Yeah. Yeah. So significantly diverted because because of that. So number one, I tell people just, again, make this filter on the front end a lot better. It forces you that that at least you do. That's forward looking, backward looking. You have a responsibility to make sure that this doesn't happen to anyone else if possible. And so if this person or this firm um, is out there behaving this way. And, you know, you should be a resource for other entrepreneurs about how they behave. You know, that's just how it is. And it's, it's all factual. Then, you know, maybe these firms will change if they know that there's consequences or these people will change those consequences to their actions. I mean, I don't think it's about vindictiveness, but it is about making sure we're paying it forward to the next people so it doesn't happen to them. And that's sort of the mindset I would put them in. And that's more constructive. Yeah. You've been very constructive in, in this interview. Uh, Emil, thank you so much for coming on in the arena and sharing your, your journey with us. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to In the Arena. If you enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, and share by leaving us a review and telling everyone you know. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at inthearena underscore pod. We'd love your suggestions on who else has an intense experience to share. 